Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Hi, and welcome to The Long View. I'm Jeff Patak, Global Director of Manager Research for Morningstar Research Services. And I'm Christine Benz, Director of Personal Finance for Morningstar, Inc. Our guest on the podcast today is Michael Kitsis. Michael is a partner and the Director of Wealth Management for Pinnacle Advisory Group, a Columbia, Maryland-based wealth management firm that advises on about $1.8 billion of assets. In addition, Michael is a co-founder of the XY Planning Network. As the host of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast and the publisher of the popular financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, Michael has established himself as one of the most prolific and insightful commentators on the financial advice and planning business. A fixture on the speaking circuit and in the media, Michael often addresses key trends and innovations in the way advisors serve their clients, subjects we look forward to taking up with him today. Michael, welcome to The Long View, and thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Michael. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Christine. It's good to be here and chat with everyone. Well, it's our great pleasure. I I wanted to get started maybe with a background question. I think that you'll be familiar to some, but not all of our listeners, and so it might be helpful to them to get a bit of background on you. We know that you majored in psychology at Bates with a minor in theater and a pre-med concentration, but... You know, how did you find your way to the financial advice business, the the planning business? You know, your background wouldn't necessarily suggest that that was the direct linear path. And so, you know, how did you find yourself having an affinity for for that field? Yeah, it, it certainly was not a linear path. As, as you said, I was a psych major, theater minor, pre-med student. I was at a liberal arts school up in New England. I was a Bates College graduate and and you know, God bless. Like I, I loved Bates and I loved and I loved being there and I loved the liberal arts education but it is very much a like we've taught you to think now go be successful in the world <laughs> like okay now i got to figure out what i'm actually going to do and and the only thing i really think i figured out by the end of college was having studied psychology theater and medicine was that i did not want to do psychology theater or medicine <laughs> uh you know, psychology was interesting to study but i just i didn't want to work in the field uh, theater was a wonderful hobby for me, but I didn't want to make it a, a, a career for myself. And, and I was actually fascinated with medicine and emergency medicine in particular. I was an EMT back in college and like shadowing and doing internships in emergency rooms. This was also the heyday of, of ER, the television show, which probably was an influence as well in retrospect. Uh, and, and just decided by the end of college that I didn't want to disappear for what felt like the decade of my 20s to go to do four years of med school and four years of residency and like reappear in my 30s. I, I just, I wanted to do more stuff now. And so I was really graduating and just looking for a job opportunity and fell pretty randomly into uh, financial services. My uh, you know, grandmother was an assistant to a life insurance agent back in the 1960s and 70s. And when my parents got married, the life insurance agents did, well, I guess what you would do back then. What do you do when your secretary's daughter gets married? You give the new husband a life insurance policy as a wedding gift, which is literally what he did. So my father had this old life insurance policy from 25 odd years ago that no one had looked at. And so in uh, 1999, someone came out to review the policy. And then when they finished reviewing the policy, said, by the way, do you know anybody who might want to come into the business because I'm also a sales manager? And my father said, well, you know, my son's about to graduate and he has no idea what he wants to do. <laughs> and that turned into an interview and that turned into a job and that turned into my landing in the, in the financial services industry. I had absolutely no background. I took one econ class in college and 
thought it was kind of neat. And then I landed in financial services because the discussion at the time was, you know, you, you can help people and you get a, a great income potential and you know, control over your future and all these things that sounded wonderful as a 23-year-old testosterone-driven male. So I was like, sure, let's go for it. Uh, and, and then I landed in the industry and found that it was a little bit different than what I'd been sold. So let's talk about that. One thing I love about your bio, Michael, is that you've written about how at the insurance company you figured out to distinguish yourself by reading these contracts closely and being the expert on how to pick apart these contracts. Let's talk about that. And I think that's kind of a career hack that people can use, like find that hard thing that people hate doing and get yourself really good at it. Yeah, it, it is. You know, I so when I started out in the insurance side of the industry, you know, my business card said financial advisor, but I realized pretty quickly I, my job was to sell insurance. Uh, you know, we we were going out and we were seeing all these people, and we had financial advisor on the business card, but we were really there to sell insurance. And I sort of had like two different breakthroughs that hit me at the same time, probably I don't know six or twelve months into the into the job. the The first was. I met this one advisor in our office out of the probably 20 or 25 that were in our branch location who had his CFP certification. And he was just a really different guy than everybody else. Everybody else was you know, trained in variable universal life insurance. That was the big product of the day back in the late 90s uh, and, and would go out and sell VUL. And he had this different financial planning approach where he would go out and just ask people about their financial situation and what their problems and challenges were. And then give them whatever they needed as a solution. And I was like, that just seems easier to me <laughs> to, to give them what they need instead of just always selling the one thing you've got and hoping you find a person who buys it. It just, just seems easier. And so I started shifting in the financial planning and comprehensive financial advice direction. And then almost as soon as I did that, I realized that I didn't actually know anything about finances and money. <laughs> Because they don't teach you that when you start as a financial advisor. They taught us the regulations we were going to be subject to. They taught us the products that we were supposed to sell. They taught us a bit about how to sell them. But they didn't actually teach us anything about money and finances and how to actually give advice effectively. And I had this like enormous crisis of confidence going, oh my God, I'm, I'm going and talking to these people about their life savings. Like Some of these people have spent more time saving this money than I've been alive on this earth. And I don't actually know anything about money. I probably shouldn't be giving them advice. Like, I'm going to hurt someone. And I think part of that was ingrained in me from coming up through uh, you know, pre-med training and being an EMT, that you actually learn very early on exactly what your scope of knowledge is and where your limitations are. So like, you don't try to help someone even with the best of intentions and hurt them through your own ignorance or limitations that you didn't know enough about their condition to help them the right way. And so I became acutely aware that I didn't actually know what the heck I was doing and that if I was going to succeed, I'd better figure out what the heck I was doing. And so that started leading me down a road of getting professional designations. I started with CFP certification and added more from there. And then they're trying to go really deep on how can I really start differentiating myself and, and my knowledge and, and try to create a credible expertise and the conclusion I came up with at the time was, geez, these annuities with all these living benefit riders are becoming really popular because they were just coming out in the very late 90s and early 2000s. Uh, I'm going to get really good at these 
uh, annuity uh, living benefit riders because they're kind of confusing. They're all different. We would have all these wholesalers come in that would talk about their contracts and they couldn't even explain the differences between theirs and everyone else's. So I said, I'm, I'm going to read them all. I'm just going to read all the prospectuses that, you know, giant document that no one reads. I, like, I'm going to read that and I'm going to make a giant spreadsheet of all of them so that at least internally we can actually figure out which is which and which one is better for any particular client situation. And, and it turned into what essentially was my first deep domain expertise. I, I became the internal office annuity expert. Then I became a little bit of an annuity industry expert. Uh, and then I actually ended up publishing my first book on Advisor's Guide to Annuities of just taking all this stuff that I'd learned and sharing it out with, with wider and wider audiences and getting myself uh, to become known as an expert in the process. Going back to your psychology uh, background, I want to talk to you about um, what you think about the field of behavioral finance. Do you call upon your psychology uh, education in sort of evaluating what's going on in that space? So i i have I have kind of a slightly different take on on the behavioral finance world, at, at least as it relates to us as as advisors. And, and I think part of this does come from my from my background in psychology. So. We have all of this research that the economics professors have done that we've dubbed behavioral finance, which is, I think of it as basically, here's a giant list of all the silly, dumb things that we do with money because of these biases that we have, which cause us to not behave the way the economists thought we were going to behave, right? Like that's that's literally how that research came about in the economics field, like human beings kept not doing what the economics models were supposed to do. So we called them anomalies and then we called them biases because the implication is like, you're doing it wrong because you're not doing what the model said you were supposed to do. And we've over time now cataloged this giant list of things that we do. We have a, a recency bias that we over extrapolate the recent past, the future. So markets up three months, it's going to the moon, markets down three months, it must be going to zero. Uh, we get all these familiarity biases. The more we know the company, the better, uh, the more comfortable we are with it. We get overconfident when we're successful. And so I was like, okay, that's all well and good from the economics end, but I wear a financial advisor hat. I got to sit across from someone who's kept 100% of their net worth in their company stock because it's gone up and they're very overconfident in it. And they're very familiar with it because they worked at the company for 25 years. So they believe they have more information than the markets because they hear the water cooler talk. And I know academically, this is the overconfidence bias and the familiarity bias. But I have to help someone do something about this. And to me, this is where behavioral finance realm suddenly falls short. Like, okay, I get it. There's an overconfidence bias and a familiarity bias. But what am I supposed to do? Like, do I say to the client, well, you know, Mr. Smith, it's actually really not a good idea to be so concentrated in your company stock. I know that you think it's safe, but it's actually just because you're being overconfident and overly familiar with your company, even though you don't actually know anything more than what the markets know. Now, that might be factually true. It probably will not get the client to change their behavior. It might get me fired <laughs> when they get really angry because I just said that to them. So there's this gap to me that we can talk about all of these different anomalies and the, and the funny things we do. But when we get to what to me is the questions that really start to matter, which is what are you supposed to do about this? Like, what are you supposed to do differently to get the client down a, a, a better path? You know, I, I guess part of this is just my, my bias of training and education and where I come from. But I quickly find myself back in the psychology research, not the economics, behavioral finance research to figure out 
what you're supposed to actually do about this. And so I start looking at material like Robert Cialdini's research on influence and persuasion. Like, obviously, there's a bad version of influence persuasion where you manipulate something to do something bad for them. But there's a good version of influence and persuasion, which is how do you help someone get to the better outcome they need to get to that they're stuck on and can't get to because they've got some biases or blind spots that are that are challenging them. And so I look at at material like that, Robert Cialdini's influence research and persuasion research. Um, Dr. Moira Summers has done research around advice that sticks, bringing in what we've learned from the medical field about how do doctors give better medical advice that people actually follow through on. And that to me actually is where, at least from the advisor realm, the 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 future of behavioral finances. I don't actually think it's in the economics realm. No offense to the great economics research that has identified these biases. What you do with them is much more an exercise of psychology and coaching than economics. So maybe if we could turn that around for a second, as you know, it's pretty common in the advisor field to invoke behavioral modification as one of the selling points of a particular advisor's practice and what it is they can deliver to the client. So if I'm a client sitting across the table from that advisor who's pitching me and they say, well, one of the things I can help you to do is, you know, to avoid some of these temptations and impulses that might, you know, cut your plan to ribbons. What what sort of diligence should I be doing? What sort of questions should I be asking as a as a prospective client to ensure that that advisor really is going to deliver on that promise, that it's not just cheap talk, that they really do have an actual structure for modifying behavior? Well, so I, so I have to admit again, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit mixed on this, that just having lived this world as an advisor, I don't think this is why most clients hire us in the first place. Not that it's not a value we provide. Like I've, I was in the business during the market crash from 2000 to 2002. I was in the business in 2008, 2009. Like I've seen people who start freaking out when they feel like the world's crashing down and they're afraid their portfolio is literally going to go to zero and we have to try to talk to them and convince them and help them stay back on board and, and, and not make panicked decisions. But I can probably count on one hand the number of, of clients we've ever worked with who actually came to us for that reason in the first place, where you know they, they so burned themselves in the last bear market that they said, okay, I, I just, I, I can't do this anymore myself. I cannot control myself. I, I got to get out of doing this. I'm going to go hire a financial advisor to do this for me instead. Uh, because the challenge is, if you're going to hire an advisor to help you manage your behavior, you first have to say in a bit to yourself, that you're not effectively able to manage and control your own behavior. And that's a hard thing for most of us to say to ourselves. It, it may be true. Sometimes we have these moments of crystallization realization where we say, I, I just probably really need an advisor to do this for me. Like, I, I'm not doing this very well myself. This is not going well. I've made some bad trades. I've made some bad investments. I can't seem to stop myself from making the bad ones. I'm going to go get an advisor to help me. But you only get there at best after you've had re- repeated poor investment outcomes that, that drive you in that direction. You say, oh gosh, I just I have to delegate this and let it go. For most people that we sit across from though, even though that may be of value that we provide as part of the ongoing relationship, it's not usually the primary reason that we find clients hire us as advisors to begin with. It's, it's much more about you have the expertise, 
you have the the knowledge to help me better get to my goals and find a better path. Um, I just literally want to delegate this because I don't want to spend so much time doing it. Like I can do it. I've done okay, but I just don't like spending all my vacations looking back at the stock market on my phone. I would rather have you do it so I can enjoy my vacation and ski more or whatever it is you want to do. And that it's much more that search for expertise or delegation mentality. I find that that drives people to decide to work with an advisor as opposed to specifically hiring them to say, you know, the next time the market goes volatile, you're going to feel like you want to throw your portfolio off a ledge and I'm going to rein it back in. Like it may be really valuable to do it in the moment, but it's hard, I find, to convince most people that that's even a problem that they need solved in the first place. The extent that the question is how will they do it though, frankly, what, what we see overwhelmingly, even just within the, the limited advisor research that's out there is just communication. It's just, it's just being there. It's being available. It's, the, it's whether the advisor will be there to talk to you when the time comes and whether they're able to explain things to you and give you context for them so that it doesn't seem so bad in the moment. Because that, that's kind of what happens to us. And that's usually one of our biggest tools as advisors to help people that are in those moments is to kind of zoom the, zoom the camera out a little bit and put the market volatility in the broader context of what's going on. Like, I know it's terrifying. The market's down 25% and all this stuff is happening. But, you know, we once stayed down 85% because we thought the world was ending in the Great Depression, but we still came back and we're higher than ever. So let me show you what that one looked like. And let me show you what this one looks like. And all of a sudden you'll see this actually isn't so bad by comparison. So can we stay on board? And, and just does the advisor communicate with you? When will you meet? How often will you meet? How will you communicate in between the meetings? I think that's what you're looking for to figure out, can this advisor help me with my behavior when the time comes? But I, I just find in practice that not a lot of people actually want to seek that out or, or even want to have that conversation in the moment because I can't convince them that my behavior management is valuable until I convince them that their behavior is terrible and uncontrollable, even by themselves. And most of us just don't want to say that about ourselves. It's, it's kind of kind of takes you down a notch. It doesn't feel very good. So uh, that to me actually is the biggest blocking point in the first place around behavioral finance challenges. So it sounds like you think there's room for more discussion and research in the space of here's the bias that we see. What steps are we going to take to try to improve the outcome? Is that your thought? Uh, absolutely. Like from the, from the advisor's end, uh, there's very, very little research at all about what you're actually supposed to do about this stuff. Uh, you know, as, as Jeff had mentioned in my bio at the beginning, a, a part of what I do is public speaking, you know, and, and teach and train a lot of advisors at a lot of different conferences. And, and one of the sessions we do that's very popular is around behavioral finance. And most of the discussion, because again, I come at it from the advisor end helping advisors, most of the discussion is it's actually psychology research. It's not behavioral finance research per se. Like the behavioral finance stuff tells us where the anomalies are. The psychology research tells us what to do about them. And I can cross those over a little because I you know, came from early stage psychology learning before I landed in financial services. But most of us don't do that as advisors. We're not trained in it. And I find very little research out there of anybody really working in that in that space, although there are some crossovers starting to appear. I'll, again, I'll give a plug for folks like Dr. Moira Summers, who's been doing a version of that, taking what they've learned in the medical research about how to get patients to comply with medical advice 
and trying to cross apply it to financial services to how consumers can uh, better comply with financial advice. So maybe we'll shift gears and turn our gaze forward and talk a bit about the future of advice. But before we do so, I- I've heard you talk before and you've you've presented a chronology of sorts for the advice business. I think that you've talked about three different phases and we're entering a fourth phase for financial advice. Yep. Maybe it started up to 1975 financial advisors as stockbrokers. It was the era of stockbrokering followed by the financial advisor is the mutual fund salesperson, which lasted until it's called the mid-90s or close to 2000. And then we enter the era of internet disintermediation where, you know, it's the rise of the AUM and fee-only model. And so maybe update us just to put the discussion into proper context. Where are we now and what implications does that have for the future? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I, I think we really are at one of these turning points, inflection points for the industry, and 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 they really do come kind of disturbingly like clockwork every every twenty years or so, and they're driven by technology leaps that occur alongside them. So you know, as you said, like early on, advisors were stockbrokers, in like the sixties and seventies, and then in nineteen seventy five, there were these sort of twin events that happened. The the SEC deregulated trading commissions and allowed them to float. So for the first time ever, firms could try to get more efficient at their stock trading and then undercut the competition. Uh, prior to that, trading fees were always fixed by the SEC. So you like you couldn't compete on price. So no one put a lot of investments into technology to make stock trading better because you couldn't compete on price. So the SEC deregulated trading commissions. And then within uh, literally about two months, this entrepreneur in Northern California decided to to create a startup near San Francisco where he would use these newfangled things called computers to try to disrupt human financial advisors. His name was Chuck Schwab. And Schwab started as a discount brokerage to leverage technology. Ameritrade came shortly thereafter and, and, and a slew of others. And in 20 years, the technology won. The cost to execute a stop trade fell by 90%. And, and all the advisors couldn't get paid for stockbrokering anymore. So we shifted into funds. We had a run with that. You know, I kind of started at the end of the mutual fund era. And, and I still remember it even when I was starting in early 2000, you know, I told my friends and family, like, I think I'm going to become a financial advisor when I graduate. And the feedback I got was, you know, slightly paraphrased, something to the effect of, Michael, you're an idiot. Uh, <laughs> buying funds is so easy, a baby can do it. Because if you remember, that was literally the E-Trade commercial at the time was a baby in a crib day trading stocks and funds <laughs> from the internet. Uh, you know, the internet is going to completely destroy financial advisors. Like, what are you doing? This can't work. And while the internet didn't kill advisors, it did kill the mutual fund model. Uh, because we didn't need to sell them anymore. You could buy them straight off the internet, which led to the growth of no-load funds and the shift to ETFs as an alternative to the no-load funds. And now... 20 years later, we see the net outcome with net outflows from from mutual funds, but it started then. And so we get these technology leaps, like computers disrupted the stockbroker model, the internet disrupted the mutual fund model, uh, and then I think, frankly, robo-advisors now. And just that style of technology, it's not literally about the robo-advisors. Like We have these tools as advisors as well. But the fact that I can use rebalancing software, which is our version of a robo-advisor, I can use rebalancing and model management software to take the entire process of designing an asset allocated portfolio, picking the funds or ETFs and implementing it. And I can boil it down to the two clicks of a mouse button. The first click picks which model you're going to get and the second click implements it in the portfolio. 
when technology takes the entire asset allocation model process down to two clicks of a mouse button, the model has to change again. And that's the inflection point that I think we're at. So we had this run of stockbrokers, then a run of mutual funds, then a run of fee-based asset allocated portfolios. And now I think we're in another one of these inflection points where the next cycle just really is about financial. I actually see two directions. From the advisor's end, it really is about financial planning advice and delivering financial planning as a value on top of portfolios that are going to be increasingly easy to design from technology. And from the technology end, the next actual step is what I call indexing 2.0. Some people call it direct indexing, where I think technology is going to allow us to completely disintermediate not just mutual funds, but most of the ETF complex as well. And we're actually going to go back to the world of stock days where I just have a computer where I click a button and it buys me the 500 stocks of the S&P 500, no need to pay the ETF wrapper fee. And and from there, I can customize. Like I can buy my S&P 500, but I want a little bit more solar stocks, a little bit less uh, uh, oil stocks because I've got some particular preferences that I want to apply to that portfolio. And you can have your customized, personalized version of a S&P 500 fund made just for you with your preferences, bought with the individual stocks, and eliminating the funds and ETFs altogether. But because technology will implement that so easily in the future, from the advisor end, it all becomes, well, great. So the computer did that, two clicks of a mouse button. Now, what are you providing as valuable advice on top of that? Which means I see from the advisor end, we'll increasingly be going towards niches, specializations, and other ways that we add deeper and deeper advice layers on top of the portfolio, because that part's just going to become super fast and easy for everyone. One other dimension of the technology discussion is that increasingly it doesn't matter that your advisor lives in your community, that you could find the right advisor and he or she may be on the other side of the country. Do you think anything gets lost with um, financial advice not being delivered in person? You know, I... This is an area that we spend a lot of time on. Our XY Planning Network in particular has a lot of advisors that work with people virtually, particularly Gen X and Gen Y clients who at least are a little more, we'll call it the digitally native and comfortable uh, in a technology realm, including interacting with their advisor with technology. You know, from from my end, because I've done this with clients over the years as well, you know, realistically, you lose a little bit of something when you're meeting with people virtually and not in person. But the rise of video chat and you know Zoom and Skype and FaceTime and all those different tools really reduces how much is actually lost. Uh, you know, like phone meetings are hard and email is hard. You can't see people. There's no context. So much of human communication is the is the nonverbal. It's just like what we see in their body language and how they react and the look on their face when we said the thing that we just said uh, that that you lose until you can actually see them. But you don't have to be in the same room with them to see them and get that. You just need a decent video feed, which increasingly we can do from our smartphone, our tablet, our desktop, our laptop with all this different technology that usually at least works pretty smoothly in a world where we've mostly got high-speed internet these days. And so I, I do think it begins to shift the the nature of the relationship at least or or how much really needs to be done in person. And you know, there will always be a subset of people that just have a preference for face-to-face in the room across the table from each other instead of using the technology. And that exists across generations. There are millennials like that the same way there are baby boomers like that. So there will always be a subset of people that have that preference for in-person, face-to-face. But 
for the rest, you know, if there's one thing I think we're learning from the ongoing growing shift of technology is that there's a whole lot of stuff that if we know what we want and what we're looking for and we can just get it online with the internet, that's what we do, right? I mean, we said over and over again, the internet was never going to displace bricks and mortar stores because, you know, we got to walk the aisles of the supermarkets so that we can browse and find what we want. And like the internet could never destroy bricks and mortar clothing stores because who would buy clothes online without trying them on first in the store? Yet we're watching Amazon slowly dismantle (laughs) all of those uh, uh, industries. And while it might not take them to zero, it certainly is taking them to be much smaller than they are today. And, And I think you'll find the same is true for financial advice that, you know, look, there'll always be some subset of people that would just want that in-person sit across from the desk or around the table and shake hands at the end. Uh, Dynamic, just it's part of how we're wired as human beings. They won't go away. But a lot of these problems just, hey, I got a financial pain point. I need to talk to an expert to find a solution. You know, there's even websites out there now where you, you hurt yourself. You can go online and connect with a doctor and hold your injury up to the camera and the doctor will diagnose you over the internet and prescribe something. Now, if the doctor sees it's really, really serious, they'll say, get off the internet and go to a hospital. But if it's a relatively straightforward thing to diagnose, they'll diagnose and prescribe a solution right there because you held your injury up to a camera on the internet. And so if we can do that with medicine and we can do this with clothing, uh, we can do this with at least large portions of financial advice as well. And thanks to the internet, you can find these people and you can find ever increasing specializations of people who can help you in a way that we couldn't 20 years ago. Like if I'm a doctor getting ready to sell my medical practice and I want to find an advisor to help, like where do you look that up under the yellow pages? Like, do you look it up under D for doctors or S for succession planning or M for mergers and acquisitions to sell medical practices? Like you wouldn't even know where to look. Now you just go to Google and you type in like advisor to help me sell a medical practice and you get a whole bunch of answers. And, and so the, the internet to me becomes the great enabler. That means you can find an advisor to help with almost any problem that you've got. And they're probably going to be a really specialized expert who has really deep expertise in that problem. So if after that, you still want to go to someone in person, by all means, knock yourself out. But the bar is getting really high of what you can actually uh, get done on the internet before you need to bother to go see an advisor in in person, face to face. So you alluded to changing client expectations. I think you did so in the context of what you called indexing 2.0, direct indexing, where there's a greater emphasis, a premium of importance placed on personalization of what's delivered. I don't want the model. I want something that's me, right? And so hence indexing 2.0. Um, are, are there other examples that you can cite of how client expectations you think will evolve in meaningful ways in the future where the industry will have to really adapt to those changing preferences? Well, well, frankly, I think one of the biggest changing preferences that the industry has to adapt to and is still struggling to adapt to is just how willing people actually are to engage financial advice through the internet. Like, you know, e- even today we're we're having that conversation and you know i'm i'm not trying to give you you guys a hard time it's it's the it's the conversation that's out there but i you know we're still talking today about hey will consumers actually even really do advice over the internet and in the meantime like personal capital powered their way to uh, about 10 billion dollars under management working with cfps who engage clients virtually uh, Vanguard now is $130 billion under management with over 600 CFPs 
all of whom work with clients virtually. So the industry is still debating about whether anybody will actually work with an advisor over the internet. And the forward-thinking firms have just already gone and done it. And they're already doing it and it's already working. Uh, not necessarily for everyone. But like I'm not, I'm not trying to say we're going to completely get to a world where all we ever do in our lives is sit in our rooms in front of computer screens and interact with everybody uh, virtually and never see another human being in person. I think for most of us, that's probably still a weird dystopia because our brains are wired to be herd animals. We do like to be around other human beings. But when you just need expertise to solve problems, the internet's pretty good at finding you experts and video meetings are pretty good at helping you engage with those experts. And so I think you know, beyond things like direct indexing, that will be surprise disruptions for the industry. I think some of the other ones, the, the, the sheer number of people that are actually going to be willing to engage an advisor virtually, uh, I think is going to be drastically higher than anyone anticipates. Like watching our industry today say, oh, no one's ever going to want to work with an advisor virtually. It's all in person. To me, is like clothing stores insisting that Amazon was no threat to them 20 years ago. And it took a while, but we can see how, that tur- that, how that's turning out. Uh, I, I think there's a shift as well that as the technology comes along, you know, there's been a whole bunch of discussion of like, do robo advisors and does that technology replace advisors? And when I look at it at the end of the day, like the technology helps people onboard their portfolios, move their money, get it invested and pick a model portfolio. Frankly, that's not my primary value proposition as an advisor either. In fact, that's what, for the most part, our team does. Like as an advisor, I delegate that to other people that can support on the paperwork process. And so when I look at what happens with all of this technology leaps that are moving forward, what I see is not challenges to the financial advisor, but that most of the financial advisors, middle and back office, get replaced by technology. And I don't think we're talking enough about the threat of technology to middle and back office advisory firm jobs, as opposed to this threat to the front office advisor itself that is turning out not to be a threat. And I think the biggest shift that probably happens with all of this is just what happens when the advisor business models really start shifting to being more financial planning centric. You know, for the past 40 years, financial planning was usually something we did on the side as a throw in, as a loss leader, uh, like, hey, I'll give you a plan because I know if you do the plan with me at the end of the day, uh, you're probably going to give me your money to manage because the plan will say you need to invest it differently and you want someone to help you do that. Uh, you know, Before that, financial planning was really good at helping to sell mutual funds and it was good at helping to sell insurance products. But now we're getting to the point where the financial planning really, truly actually becomes the primary value proposition. And so the model that I'm expecting to see start cropping up soon that will be enabled by technology to be really disruptive to the advisor space is what happens when come, someone comes along and says, well, you know, my, my financial planning fee is 1000 or 3000 or $5,000 a year or whatever it is, and I'll do all your investment management stuff for free. So rather than charging for the assets and giving away the planning the way so many firms do today, someone's going to start charging for the planning and giving away the asset management for free because when the technology gets good enough and I can do it with two clicks of a mouse button, I don't have to charge anything for it. It doesn't actually take any time in my firm and everybody else can do it in two clicks of a mouse button anyways. And so I think a lot of the asset management is the industry and how funds are distributed and, and that whole world gets very disrupted when advisors start selling financial planning and giving away asset management for free, especially if we don't need funds and ETFs to do it because the indexing 2.0 products do it for us directly. 
So a related question is you referenced that this shift away from an emphasis on investment advice to financial planning is already well underway. My question is about the advisors themselves. Is it your sense that a lot of advisors are playing catch-up on the financial planning piece? They've styled themselves as portfolio consolidators, but they're not necessarily knowledgeable about financial planning. Yeah, I think we still have a huge industry gap. I mean, when you look at the at the top level, uh, you know, I, I think Cerulli Associates probably has the best data tracking on this. They estimate right around three hundred thousand uh, financial advisors out there in the out there in the landscape. We live in lots of different channels. Some of us are in broker dealers. Some of us are in RIAs. Some of us are in our insurance agencies. But uh, you know, Cerulli across the channels pegs it at, at around three hundred thousand financial advisors in total. If you look at CFP board's statistics, who has certified financial planner designation, which is at this point like overwhelmingly the largest, most popular designation for advisors in this direction, you find out that the CFP board reports somewhere around 83,000 CFP certificates. So 83,000 out of 300,000, which means we're not even 30% of financial advisors even have a baseline designation like CFP certification. And, and ultimately, I, I still view CFP certification as the entry designation, not the end point, right? Like if you look at doctors, yes, they all get their medical degrees, but many of them then move on and get specializations that go deeper than just being a general practitioner. Uh, advisors, I think, are going to end out in the same realm as well. CFP becomes our gateway, uh, the minimum credential we need to practice. And then we add on from there. And other countries are starting to do this already. Uh, Australia is in the midst of changing their financial advisor standards over the next several years. And in Australia, the way they're going to do it is essentially everybody's going to need uh, college level education in financial planning. It's actually something that's a bit higher than their current CFP certification. So even if you had your CFP in Australia, you're not automatically qualified in for their new educational standards that are going to roll in over the next couple of years. It's a change called FASIA down there. And so, you know, we're, I think, frankly, way behind in the U.S. about coming up to these sorts of, of standards, and we have catch-up. We have a lot of catch-up to do. You know, Australia is putting their standards in place. We're kind of voluntarily getting our way to the point where almost 30% of financial advisors have CFP certification. And so I, I see a big split and a big divide coming over the next 10 years of the advisors who have CFP certification or have reinvested into themselves to get it and are trying to move up and add value on top of the technology, and the rest who will just try to you know, out-compete the technology head-to-head, selling the same things that the computers will do easier and easier and faster and faster and cheaper and cheaper, and, and most of them won't, won't survive uh, the business over the next 10 to 15 years. You know, it won't be an avalanche out. We tend to have pretty deep relationships with our clients and who don't go anywhere if you continue to serve them reasonably. But the challenge that will happen for most of these firms is growth will just stop. They, they won't be competitive anymore, so they can hold on to their existing clients who may just very, very slowly leave over time. But, but their growth will stop because you need the new financial planning value proposition above and beyond what the technology will do to be competitive and grow over the next 10 to 15 years. You've been an advocate of having competency standards in the industry. Yes. What would those look like? What's your vision? Um, frankly, I think something like CFP certification is a pretty good and reasonable starting point 
for us, uh, you know, whether you literally do it through the CFP board or just have a regulator create something that's CFP-like that they do themselves is open for, for discussion. Some people here think it would be easier to just let the CFP board do it. Uh, if you look out to, again, Australia, their Financial Advisor Standards Authority, which is what FASIA stands for, uh, you know, their, their Standards Authority decided not to literally use the CFP marks. They made their own thing that's sort of CFP-like, even plus a little. So we'll see exactly what it looks like. But I think something of that nature, I mean, it's not a big leap to me to say, if you're going to hold out as someone who gives people comprehensive advice about their finances, you should actually know something about finances first. Because <laughs> we, you know, we have no education requirements for the industry. The only requirement to get a license to do this is a, is a basic series exam from FINRA, you know, either the series six and 63 or the series 65, depending on your broker dealer and RAA. And like, these are exams that take a couple of hours to go through. You can study for them in a week or two if you're a pretty good student. And they don't teach you about financial advice at all. They teach you the laws and regulations that you will be subject to. Uh, and they teach you a little bit about the basics of the things that you might be selling, like stocks and bonds and mutual funds, et cetera. Because at the end of the day, like series exams are sales licenses. And when you're in the advice business, it's a professional licensure, not a sales licensure. And when you just look at any profession that exists out there today, all professions that are recognized as professions have standard uniform educational competency requirements as minimum standards to hold out as a professional because it's, it's just an essential basic of consumer trust. And when I look out there at how much distrust I see from consumers in the financial advisor marketplace, you know, the, the industry's debate has been around the fiduciary standard and kind of duty of loyalty as my advisor acting in, in their interests or, or my interests. But when I actually look at the consumer space directly and talk to consumers and look at some of the research out there on consumers, I don't actually see a whole bunch of my advisor had his best interests at heart and not my own. Like that's, that's not what people say and how they frame it. What they say is I got a bad outcome. Like I got bad advice. You know, my broker told me to buy this and it went badly. And that's not ultimately really a, a loyalty issue. It's just a competency issue. Loyalty certainly plays a role as well. And I am a strong advocate around the fiduciary standard, but it's not enough just to pass a law that says every advisor has to act in their client's best interest with no actual education about how to act in their client's best interest because it doesn't improve the outcomes. It just means when advisors go out there and try to act in their client's best interest, they cause all the harm due to ignorance instead of greed, which is not really improving the consumer situation at the end of the day. The, the competency standards have to come up as well. And again, we're seeing that begin in other parts of the world. The US, frankly, has become a laggard on fiduciary and competency standards relative to where other countries are going. But you know, regulators talk to each other. Uh, these models get set in some countries and then adopted in others. I think everybody can kind of see where it's going. If we're going to hold out as professionals, we probably should be subject to professional standards. And so to me, it's only a question of uh, when and what will the actual standard be but but not an if. Like it, it, it's an inevitable reality as advisors move towards being an advice profession and move away from our roots as being you insurance and investment product salespeople. Another debate that's raged is how advisors should be paid. And there are alternative fee models, flat fee, subscription-based. 
I think you've had some thought-provoking perspectives on that in recent comments you've made. To characterize them, it sounds like you're not a strong believer that flat fee will become the dominant model anytime soon, but in 10 to 15 years, look out, right, that it could indeed be the dominant model. Can you explain that, expand a little bit on that in the time that we have left? Yeah. So I I have kind of a close connection to we'll call it alternative fee models because uh, a little over five years ago, we created a group called the XY Planning Network. And the whole focus of the XY Planning Network was helping advisors that want to get paid to do financial planning for young people, which in our industry is pretty much anybody under age 50 who's not eligible for AARP, uh, right? Like all of Gen X and Gen Y in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, who the industry traditionally has said, you can't serve them profitably because you do an assets under management model and they don't have much or any assets to manage and a percentage of a small number or zero is a small number or zero. And so we can't do financial advice for young people. And I came at this as kind of a student of the industry and a student of business models and said, this is ridiculous. Like you can absolutely serve next generation clients profitably. You just can't charge them a percentage of the assets they don't have. You just have to actually charge them a fee for financial planning and then do financial planning for them, which frankly will look different for them because they don't have portfolio problems. They have debt issues. It's it's student loan advice. It's career advice. It's benchmarking your salary and helping you negotiate a raise and figuring out what your employee benefits should be and whether you should go out and become a consultant and quit your job and what, how your household budget and cash flow is going to work. And like, should you go from a two-income household to a one-income household because you want to start your family? And like all these real-world things that people face in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, as we hit all of those life transitions that come up in our 20s, 30s, and 40s, getting married, having kids, getting divorced, starting a business, buying a home, uh, taking care of elderly parents, sending kids to college, selling our business, like all these different things that, that happen where there's a significant need for advice, but you just can't charge people a percentage of assets. The, like The math just doesn't work. You just have to charge them a fee. And so the fee that we advocated at XY Planning Network and kind of became known for was doing financial planning for a monthly subscription fee. Uh, we originally called it a monthly retainer fee, uh, but some of the industry now is starting to call them subscription fees instead. Most significantly Schwab, who launched their, their version of the XYPN model just a few months ago. And so the idea of this monthly subscription fee model is now we can, we can work with younger clients I don't need to do a percentage of assets they don't have anyways. Like I'm just going to charge my whatever is $100 a month or $200 a month or $300 a month or $1,000 a month if you're working with a small business owner that has really complex problems. Whatever that, that price point is, you can charge people an ongoing monthly fee. It fits with their cash flow, right? Because if I don't have assets, I can't pay your advisor fee from a portfolio. I have to pay it from my credit card or my checking account. All of that happens on a monthly basis, right? We all live our cash flow on a monthly basis. So we needed a model that fit a monthly basis, which was why we advocated for this monthly subscription fee and then made a platform called AdvicePay uh, so you can do the payment processing as an advisor. And you know, we got branded as like, you know, this is the model that takes down the AUM model. And the irony, as you mentioned at the beginning, like I'm also a partner back to an advisory firm that manages uh, almost $2 billion in the DC area for affluent retirees. And I actually don't see anything wrong with the AUM model. I think the AUM model is overly criticized right now, but it just only works for a small subset of consumers that actually have assets that are available to manage who wants to delegate it to an advisor and have the advisor do all that stuff for them. 
And you know, we've tried to estimate the market size on this. Like it's probably only uh, seven or eight percent of all households in the U.S. who have the assets available to manage and are willing to delegate them. And so, for the people who want that and have the assets for that, I think the AUM model works great. It continues to work great. The fee may come down a little bit only because the technology makes us more efficient, so we can do what we do for lower costs and still be effective for consumers. But I see a huge amount of growth opportunity in the subscription fee model and in general, I'll call fee-for-service models, just models where you charge fees for advice. We see people doing monthly subscription fees, annual retainer fees, fees that are a percentage of your income or a percentage of your net worth as opposed to a percentage of your portfolio. So you can calculate the percentages and work with different types of clients. And I see a huge amount of growth in that fee-for-service model because it opens up most of the other like 93% of the pie. that the AUM model just can't work with in the first place. And so the the world I see in the future when I look 15 to 20 years out is a world where most of the clients who are on the AUM model today are probably still on the AUM model. But the majority of advisors will be on fee-for-service models because there's literally like 5x to 10x as many people for monthly subscription fee models as there are for AUM models in the first place. Like So it's just a bigger market which means as the model shifts there, we may find that AUM clients still do AUM, but they're a small minority of the overall advisor landscape. Can you talk about hourly versus flat fee and how you landed on flat fee? Because if I kind of put my consumer advocate hat on, it seems like the hourly model is attractive in that many consumers' financial planning needs are pretty episodic. Like you might need multiple things one year, nothing for the next couple of years. How did you decide that the flat fee subscription model was the right one? A good question. So I, I really view it as there, there's opportunity for both. It's, it's not meant to say that, you know, subscription fees will completely dominate hourly fees that will go away. But they are fundamentally different models. Like hourly fees are transactional models. I got a problem, I go in, I get a thing, I get it done, and then it's solved and I move on. Monthly subscription fees are a relationship model. And so I think of this even in, in the context of other professionals that we engage with. Like, Some people are just fine to go to a doctor on a one-off basis whenever they hurt themselves and need to see a doctor. Others who have just even a little bit of ongoing health issues, you know, stuff that comes up a little bit more frequently, quickly get to the point where it's like, I just want a doctor that I work with on a regular basis who knows me and understands me because I get really tired of explaining my entire medical history and financials and and health situation every time I go in to see a doctor uh, cause it's always a new person if I'm transactional. So we tend to migrate towards relationship scenarios where we have some sort of ongoing need or expectation that problems will crop up on an ongoing basis. And I see the same thing in the context of financial advice. There will be a subset of consumers that want to work with our advisors on an hourly basis. Just, I want to buy me an hour or two of time with an expert when I got an expert problem I need an hour or two of time from. But then there's a portion of us where the challenges are more ongoing, if only because when you're in your 20s, 30s, and 40s, like we can say the advice need is sort of is more episodic. But if your episodes are, I got a job, I'm moving out from my parents, then I'm going back to school and I'm moving back in with my parents, then I got another job and I'm moving out, then I met someone, and I'm getting married, then we're going to buy our first home, then we're going to have our first child, then we're going to have our second child, then we're getting divorced, then I'm starting a business, then I'm getting a second marriage, then I need to help take care of an elderly parent. By now, my kids are going to college, and then another year or two, I'm going to hopefully sell my business. And like, those are all episodic things, except it's about 15 of them. And it happens every 12 to 24 months or, or faster sometimes when you're going through your 20s, 30s, and 40s. 
And so what we find in practice is the sheer volume of life transitions that drive these sorts of episodic needs come at you so fast and quickly when you're in your 20s, 30s, and 40s that there's a lot of demand for advisors that will be in an ongoing relationship. So I don't have to re-explain my entire financial history every time I go to the next advisor to ask a question. Well, Michael, this has been great. Thanks again for your time and insights and for being our guests in a long view today. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. I, I hope it's food for thought for everyone about how much change I think is coming over the next 10 or 15 years here in our industry. It certainly is. Thanks again. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on The Long View. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to and rate The Long View for Morningstar on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Christine underscore Benz. And at S-Youth1, which is S-Y-O-U-T-H and the number one. Finally, we'd love to get your feedback. If you have a comment or a guest idea, please email us at morningstar.com. Until next time, thanks for joining us. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar, Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. Jeff Patak is an employee of Morningstar Research Services, LLC. Morningstar Research Services is a subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analyses, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.